Okay, I have uh, the pr privilege of uh, presenting our guest speaker today. Uh, his name is Pastor Thomas Wang, and he comes all the way uh, to us from Buena Park, California. He's the lead pastor of a church called Grace Hill Church. And um, Pastor Thomas and I have uh, known each other for some time uh, because we've kind of run in the same circles. But uh, it wasn't only until about maybe a year, year and a half ago, maybe even two years now, where we really started to get to know each other and um, have just really found a good friend uh, as a pastor, as a uh, just as a co-worker in ministry. And, and I was so glad that he was able to come up here, uh, visit Seattle for the very first time, and really minister the word to us. Um, he is the husband uh, to Lena. Uh, he has three kids. Uh, he has Judah, uh, Emma, and then Isabella, who's his brand new daughter. She's nine months old, so please pray for his wife as she's out there with three kids all alone right now. Uh, but um, but interesting thing about Pastor Thomas is he uh, actually has a podcast uh, with uh, our guest speaker from next week, uh, a fellow by the name of Jason Min. And uh, I actually really love their podcast. Uh, I listen to it all the time. In fact, their most recent episode, I would encourage you to listen to it. You can find their podcast on Apple, Spotify, everything, right? Um, uh, but off the, it's called Off the Pulpit. And uh, it's three pastors who kind of converse about things off the pulpit. But their last conversation was with a pastor named Ray Ortland. And man, I, I was almost in tears uh, in different parts of the conversation because of how uh, amazing um, just Pastor Ray Ortland was and, and, and is and just his wisdom as well. But I, I highly encourage you to listen to that podcast. It's a, it's a really great uh, podcast. But, but please uh, uh, help me in welcoming Pastor Thomas Wang as he gives us God, God's word today. Good morning, New Life Church. Blessed to be here with all of you today. And I know every guest speaker has said that, but I really mean it. I am genuinely blessed to be here. Uh, and the reason why I'm genuinely blessed to be here is because um, a lot of our members at our church, uh, they've been, a lot of them have been going and traveling out of California, uh, settling somewhere else, and a lot of their destination happens to be in the Washington area. And so a lot of the members will ask me, uh, Tom, do you know any churches that you'd recommend for me to visit and to join? And I always recommend you guys. I recommend New Life. You should check out this church called New Life. It's amazing. It's awesome. Um, but I realize there's a problem when I say that because I've never been to New Life. This is my first time joining you. This is my first time seeing you. Uh, but that's where it's awesome, where I finally can now know the church I am recommending to the members that are coming here. Um, and it's really cool to see that you guys are the real deal, that this church is this, uh, this uh, Christ-centered church that really loves the Lord, and your community has been so friendly and welcoming to me. And so I, I have a clear conscience now of recommending people more to this church. Um, but it kind of made me think, like, well, why was I recommending New Life to my church members when I've never been with y'all? And there's a couple of reasons. Uh, one was that I, I love Pastor Eric. Um, as Eric mentioned, we've known each other for a few years, um, and the past year or so, we've kind of been getting a little bit closer. And I always tell people, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good preachers that you could meet, and those are like, you can see them everywhere, but it's actually really rare to have a good pastor, like someone who you will like shepherd your soul. And I feel like when I send members of our church to your church, I feel very confident that they won't just hear uh, good preaching here but they'll really be shepherded well. And so that's one reason why that um, I really gladly recommend this church. You guys are blessed to have a pastor like Eric. Um, but a second reason why uh, I recommend New Life to church members is your church is actually kind of similar to mine. Uh, when I look around the demographics and kind of like where you guys are at as a church, uh, there's kind of similar vibes. I have similar vibes from your church. A lot, it's filled with a lot of young people and parents who are here as well. A lot of people who are gifted, a lot of people. There's just a lot of like potential that I feel like that's here in this community. 
And it makes me think, just like I think about my church, like what kind of church are you going to be? Because you're still, I feel, forming, because you yourselves are forming. And you know, it makes me think, like, what kind of community are you going to be five, ten years from now? Or maybe even a better question is, what kind of community does God want you to be? Is there a type of community that God has in mind for this church here? And so what I want to do is I actually want to answer that question by looking at a story that it may not seem like it's answering the question, but yet I feel like when you look at it closely, it really reveals a lot of God's plan for you and for your church. It comes from the story in Genesis chapter 11. And so if you're able to, we could all rise together and we're going to read from Genesis. If you're familiar with Genesis, chapter 1 is a story of creation. It leads to the story of Adam and Eve. And then the story of Cain and Abel, then the story of Noah. And chapter 11 is like the final story in this first section of Genesis. Uh, it's the, famously known as the Tower of Babel. And so if you're there uh, and you're able to see on your screen, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 11, just that first section. And I'll read it out loud if you could follow along. So it writes in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. And they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the reading of God's word. May you please be seated. So as Pastor Eric mentioned, I am a father with young kids, and my young kids are getting to an age where it's kind of fun now. They're about seven and five, my two older ones, and they're getting to that stage where I can now introduce them to all the movies that I enjoyed when I was a kid. So we graduated from Daniel Tiger and Cocomelon, and now we're showing the, the movies that I enjoyed as a child myself. And one of the brands of movies that I enjoy showing my kids are the Pixar movies. I love showing them Pixar. I love Pixar. And like many of you, probably uh, one of my favorite Pixar movies is Toy Story. And my kids, they, they want to know like, what the movie's going to be because they'll complain, like, why are we watching this? And so I'll tell them the basic premise of the story. And the way I would tell my kids is the story of Toy Story is basically uh, these toys, imagine if they came alive. Wouldn't that be neat and interesting? That's kind of like the basic summary of what Toy Story is about, right? Um, but upon second viewing, when I saw Toy Story again, now as an older person, I actually had a different perspective of the story. And the reason why is because I read about the making of Toy Story. There's a book called Creativity, Inc. It's about like how the history of Pixar and what, how it became a company and the success that it happened. And uh, the, the director and the story writer of Toy Story, his name is John Lasseter. And John Lasseter, uh, he was kind of explaining the, like the, the, the kind of inspiration for the story. And his inspiration, it wasn't as simple as, oh, if toys came alive, how fun would that be? But John Lasseter, he was actually saying, you know, he realizes that anything that's created, it's always created for a purpose. You never create something just for nothing, but there's always a reason why you create something. 
So for example, a cup. A cup is created to contain liquid or water. And so Lassiter, he was imagining if this cup were alive and had emotions, what would make it happy? Pretty much to fulfill what it's created for. So he imagined if a cup is filled, it's happy, and a cup is empty, then it's probably going to be sad. And so Lassiter, what he was thinking was with toys, what are the purpose of toys? It's not just to be there, but it's to be played with. And so Lassiter, he based that entire movie determining that, you know, these toys, they're going to be happy when Andy plays with them, and they're going to be really sad when Andy is not playing with them. And that kind of made sense to the whole movie, because that's what the characters were all about, right? They wanted Andy's affection. They were sad when they were locked up into the attic. And when I understood the origin of what this story was about, it helped me actually really appreciate and have a deeper appreciation and understanding of Toy Story, and it made me enjoy the movie a lot more. I would argue that the story of Babel it's kind of similar to Toy Story for a lot of us because when you hear the story of Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel, whether you grew up in the church or not, it was a familiar story. All of us kind of heard it before and we feel like we understand what the story is about. So for example, if, you did not, if you're kind of not in the church, it's your first time here, you might read the story and think, oh, the Tower of Babel, I heard the story. It's a folklore that Christians believe where it explains why people today speak in different languages. So the purpose of the story is to give the Christian view of why there are different races and languages and countries. That's what the Tower of Babel is about. If you're more churchy and you grew up like in youth group or so forth and you heard sermons about this, you might see the Tower of Babel as more of like a moral story where it tells us be careful of pride. Don't be prideful. Watch out if you make a name for yourself. And if you do, don't, you know, God's going to tear you down and so forth. And while both of those interpretations, it's true. The story is meant to explain the, the languages, of the history of that. And it is talking about pride. I'd actually argue that like Toy Story, there's a deeper meaning to it. There's something deeper that's going on here where it's not just about language. It's not just about the pride in our lives but it's actually talking primarily about the purpose of our life. What is the purpose of your life? You see, Christianity argues that we as human beings, we've been created. We are created creatures, and we are created for a purpose. And therefore, how we live out that purpose will determine how, how much joy and fullness we feel versus if we don't live according to that purpose, don't be surprised if you are filled with emptiness, if something feels off, if something feels wrong. And so a question for all of you is, what are you living for these days? What guides, the, what guides the decisions of your life? What are the goals that you have in life? What is your purpose in life? And probably most importantly, are you feeling fulfilled? Or do you come feeling a little bit empty today? To help answer this question, we're gonna look at Genesis 11 and we're gonna talk about three things. Number one, living God's purpose in our lives. Secondly, understanding God's shaking of our lives. And third, praising God's restoration of life. Living God's purpose, understanding God's shaking, praising God's restoration. First, living God's purpose for our lives. So Story of Babel begins with God. Um, he actually just judged the earth. This is after the story of Noah. And if, remember, if you ever heard the story of Noah, you know, a flood came to judge and it wiped everybody out because of sin. And there's one family left in the ark, Noah and his family. And what happens was um, Noah, his kids had kids and Noah's kids' kids also had kids. So now you have this group of people and there's not, nobody else in the world. It's a small group of people. It's all empty because of the flood. 
And they're all, they all speak one language, and they're all traveling together, like Lord of the Rings. They're just like traveling together as, com uh, as companions. And as they are traveling together, they decide, hey, why don't we just settle down and live here? Let's, let's kind of build a place for us to kind of stay. So look again at what it says in verses 1 to 2. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And what's interesting is, is once they settled, it became kind of like the city of Seattle, where all of a sudden a lot of technology started get developing, a lot of creativity started happening. So look what it says in verses 3 to 4. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, when you see this opening part of the story, you might think, oh, okay, interesting. But when scholars, any Old Testament scholar that looks at it, they are all unanimous about the story. They say, you know this story in Babel, what you just read? This is the low point of Genesis 1 to 11. This is a story that shows how wicked and depraved humanity is. And when I hear scholars say that, I'm like, why? What's going on here? I mean, compared to what happened before Genesis 11, like, it doesn't seem that bad. I mean, Adam and Eve, they're the first story, and they're like, they brought sin into the world. They're blaming each other. That seems bad. Um, Cain, he murdered Abel. That seems like a really terrible story. Uh, in the time of Noah, people were sleeping around and getting drunk all the time. That seems kind of not good. And yet here in Genesis 11, you don't see any of that. In fact, what you see is a group of people, they seem like they're getting along pretty well. It's a nice community that's being here. They're all living together. They're building a city together. They're advancing technology. I mean, granted, they are building a tower with, so that, you know, with their name and so forth. But I feel like when they are building the city or tower, like, you have to look again, like, what are they building it for? Verse 4 actually is very explicit why they're even building the city. Look again, it says in verse 4. They're building it because lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. It's because they were building the city because they want to be safe. They want to make sure that they're secure. They're trying to protect themselves. And so when I look at this, I'm like, what's the problem? Why is this the low point of Genesis? And to answer that question, we have to ask ourselves another question. Who are these people? Let's remember who these people are. These are not random dudes just walking around. They are the descendants of Noah after the flood. And in the story of Noah after the flood, when God saved them, he didn't just save them from the flood, but he actually told them once they left the ark, he gave them a very clear command. He said, hey, once you're out there, not just go and do what you want, but in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, just two chapters before, it says this in Genesis. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was his command. God didn't just save them from the flood just to save them. But he said, hey, I want you to do something. I want you to do what Adam and Eve failed to do, which is to go out, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. In other words, go spread out. Put yourselves out there and display the glory of God to all of creation. Be a blessing to all of creation. That was the purpose of why God saved them. Now here, therefore, is the problem. In Genesis 11, what are they doing? They don't spread out. They huddle. They all stay close together. They settle in the plain of Shinar. 
And they're just kind of sitting there going, let's be safe. Let's, be, let's have this kumbaya party where we're all friends. We're all in this nice community. Let's stick close together. Let's do that. And that was completely contrary to what they're supposed to do. You know, just like many of you, the Uvalde shooting, when I heard that news, it was, like, it was very like, uh, sad. I have kids of my own. It was very outrageous, like another school shooting. Like that was just really like it struck a nerve in me. Uh, but, you know, as the time passed, you, know, you heard people getting more and more outraged, not just because of the shooting, but because of what we heard about the, the officers there, right? The police officers, when they heard the shooting, they were just standing there for, like, a very long time. And when people heard that the officers, they didn't go in because of the shooting, it, was, it, it outraged people. And the reason why is because even though we understand, like, oh, it's a scary situation, anything like that is not good, but we are appalled when we see police officers not doing what we feel like they're supposed to do. They almost, it seemed like they chose self-preservation over what's clearly their purpose or their mission. It's like if we had a fire here and a fire truck came going, we're not going there, and just drive away. It's like, dude, that's what you're here for. You're supposed to put out fires. And we get outraged when they don't do that. This is kind of what's going on with, the, with Babel. They are supposed to go out, display God's glory, and instead they choose self-preservation. Now, how does this story apply to us? How is that actually relevant for us today? I think it's relevant in two ways. Number one is this. This story reveals that even though as human beings, we're created to bless people, sin actually hardwires us to also practice self-preservation. We also like safety. We also like comfort ourselves. Like Lasseter said, John Lasseter and Pixar, you were meant to go out and be a blessing to people. You're hardwired that way. That's why altruism, doing good to others, it feels just naturally good because you are made to be a blessing to those around you. But isn't it so unnatural sometimes to do that? Don't we naturally not seek to be a blessing to others but just want to bless ourselves? I mean, think about the way you choose different things in your life. If you're like me, a lot of it is about ourselves. I mean, think about your careers, how you chose your careers. The great theologian, Ronnie Chang, he's not a theologian, he's a comedian on Netflix. But Ronnie Chang, if you ever saw a stand-up, uh, he gave a very insightful observation about uh, like Asians. Because uh, Ronnie Chang, he's Asian, and he was like, you know Asian-American parents? Every Asian-American parent, they want their children to have this one type of career. Doctors. Be a doctor. Major in biology. Like, be a doctor. And what's interesting is, and the last reason they want you to be a doctor is to help people. That is not why they want you to be a doctor. They want you to be a doctor because it's about the money. It's about the prestige. It's about showing that your family made it. And that's how we kind of gravitate towards our careers. Sure, there's altruistic things that happen, but it's kind of about us. We want status. We want to look good. We want a strong resume. It's about us. Or think about how you choose and spend your money, or how you even save your money, or how you budget your money. We budget not so that we could be more generous to people, not so that we could provide more for those who are in need, but what do we budget for? To save for a house, to save for a wedding, to save for retirement. That's just kind of the human condition, and that's all of us, and we're wired that way. And that's why probably, that's perhaps the reason why so many of us, even though we're doing all this, life feels a bit empty. It feels not really fulfilling. In fact, that's probably why uh, the most wealthy countries in the world, ironically, they tend to be the saddest. There's a, there's a depression issue going on with first world countries because we're doing all these things, and yet, who is it for? What's the purpose of it? 
New York Times, this journalist, uh, she writes this, kind of give a diagnosis of how American thinks. She says, quote, here is the American idea. Get rich, then do nothing. Sit on the beach, go out for an expensive dinner, go to Las Vegas. But these kinds of pursuits, they turn people into narcissists. They worry about themselves before anyone else. They aren't pursuing a life of meaning and purpose. And as a result, they often end up isolated and depressed. We're chasing money and possessions, not service, not purpose. If we have a purpose at all, it's just to make ourselves happy. And that's why happiness eludes us. We're not going according to the design that the designer has given to us. That's the, that's the argument that, that the Bible makes. But what's interesting is we, that's a human condition, and that's the second takeaway we get from this story, though, is that it's not to be the same, though, for you, church. As God's people, we are meant to be different. Where God also saved you from a flood, and God has made you, calling you to be a blessing to others. This is where the church is meant to be so different, radically different, where it's meant to be truly human, a redeemed humanity that lives according to the purpose that God has given to them. We have a different idea of what it means to live, which is not just self-preservation, but what does Matthew 28 say? Go make disciples. What does Mark chapter 12 says? Love your neighbors. And Luke chapter 9 says, and deny yourself. Pick up your cross. This is the purpose of our life. And this is how you experience God's goodness when you live according to that purpose. Because our purpose is not self-preservation. It's God glorification. That's what we were made for. And when you do this, that's when you begin to look like a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. This doesn't mean that you are all meant to go and be missionaries in different countries, that that's how you glorify God. Maybe for some of you. But for most of us, it's where you are right now. Are you really living on mission? Are you living on mission for something greater than yourself? Or has your whole life been about you? And so, quick diagnosis for us. Even though you are, if you're a Christian here, and you are given a mission, does your life look like Babel? Is your life this self-preserving bubble of safety and comfort and convenience? Is every decision you're making not based upon where I try to live for God's purpose, but for comfort and for status? I remember when my church, uh, our church, we went through like this replanting phase, and I was speaking to this um, executive director at a Christian network. His name is Ryan Kwan, and I was describing our church and I was telling him, like, what kind of, what season our church is in. And I was saying, hey, you know, based on what you hear about our church, what do you imagine, like, the main challenge being for us moving forward? Like, what's, like, the main challenge for this church that we have? Like, what are some things we should watch, watch out for? And Ryan Kwan, without hesitation, he said right away, the biggest challenge you will face is your church to truly be on mission. And the reason why Ryan Kwan said that is because our church, we, had some, we have some particular features. Uh, we're we're Asian-American, predominantly. And if you're Asian or you know Asians, you'll know Asians, we are notorious for being around familiar stuff. If one Asian lives in a city, we all live there. Like, we love being around other Asians, right? Uh, it's like Asians, we just love familiarity, which makes it really hard to be on mission, right? Uh, another thing about our church is we're from California. And if you've ever been out to California, it is very comfortable out there. Very comfortable. In fact, I hear people say that they'd rather be poor and comfortable in California than rich and live somewhere else. That's how our people feel. We love our comfort. And my church, we're in the suburbs. We live in the suburbs. And suburbs, you know why people often live in the suburbs? It's safe. Our kids are safe. We're safe. Gated neighborhood. 
it's all safe. And I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but it makes it really hard to think about how to be on mission. Because I see the tendencies in our church where a lot of people, when we kind of are stuck in that zone, like, who do you, like, invite to your houses on a regular basis? For people that I know, the most comfortable people is your friends. You invite only your friends. Now, you're being hospitable, but it's just the people you grew up with, and that's it. Or for people, like, who are working, like, the last thing on our mind tends to be to be not just uh, working and making money, but to be a witness. Like, am I being a witness in my workplace? Do people know I'm a Christian here? Or sometimes when our, 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 in our church situation, uh, it's, it, we, we love sports and we want to play sports with other churches. We have our own church league. And it's like, that's interesting because we want to make sure nobody fights and nobody cusses. And so we have our little church leagues are there. And again, nothing's wrong with those individually, but what ends up happening is this culture where even churches, they are known to be super safe, secure, familiar. They look a lot like Babel. It looks a lot like Babel. And so for you, if you look at your life and it resembles Babel, what does it look like for you to be on mission? I don't think it's that crazy. Again, it's not going overseas or doing crazy stuff, but it's very simple things, these little small things every day that we could decide to do. For example, your homes. Don't just invite your friends over, but have you ever considered inviting your coworker to your place? Say, hey, want to grab a meal? I have a neighbor uh, that lives next door to me, and we used to say hello all the time, like, hello. Hello, every single day. Never more than that, because I'm that typical Asian who just does my own thing, right? Hello, and that's all. COVID, though, all I had were my neighbors. That's the only people I was forced to talk to. And so we actually started talking. I actually said, hey, we, we actually had like long conversations. We got to know each other's hobbies. I one day invited them over to come eat. We had a Korean barbecue. They loved it so much that just recently they had their anniversary for the wedding, and they went to a Korean barbecue place. I'm just like, wow, like this non-Korean couple that I just said hello to, they were very engaging the whole way. And you'll be just really surprised how willing people are to come to your home and to just share a meal with you. Not just your neighbors, but even people at church. I know for us, we invite people to our church to come hang out. But how about that person who's kind of newer, who you're somewhat familiar with, but go, hey, we should grab a meal after Sunday one day. It goes such a long way of just engaging, spreading out, going out there. Or how about even after church, after service, who do we normally go to? Our friends, people who we're familiar with, our kids, or so forth. But imagine if a church, after service, for like the first five, ten minutes, it's like, hey, how are you doing? Who, like, I shook your hand during the greet, but like, let me know more about you. How are you doing here? Who are you? Or family. For me, the biggest, uh, the hardest part about being on mission for me is actually my family. Again, I have three young kids, and I realize looking back, I'm raising my kids like Babel right now. Because we're in this, like, we're, we're just focusing on, like, their academics. We want to make sure they're good at sports. But I realize, especially as preparing this message, like, I am not discipling my kids. Like, they are not learning much about Jesus from me, even though I'm a pastor. And so one thing I decided to do was, a long time ago, we, deci we decided to do family worship where we read our Bible together and we sing songs of praise. I did it years ago, and it went horribly because they're so young and they're going crazy. I was like, never again. But I feel convicted. I'm like, you know, I should disciple my kids. So we started doing that again. And every single time we do it, I remember why we stopped. Because it's just crazy. They just, you know, don't respond well. But, you know, as I do it, uh, it awakens us. It's hard, but mission is hard. It's hard. But we're reminded that this is what God wants us to do. It's more, life is more about academics. Life is more than sports. And this is our small step of trying to remind ourselves of that. But again, it, it's hard. 
And that's why a lot of us don't do it. Um, but if we continue not to do that, don't be surprised about this, what God does, because this leads to the second point, understanding God's shaking of our lives. So after they build a city and a tower in Babel, what's interesting is God actually comes down and checks it out. It's like, he, it's like someone, I imagine like God coming out from the clouds going, that's interesting. And it says here in verse 5 to 6 what God does. It says in verse 5, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. It almost sounds like God feels threatened, like, oh, no, they're going to climb up to me. What's going to happen? But I don't think that's really what's going on here. I think God's actually expressing concern about these guys are not living out the mission that I gave to them. And so what does God do? Verse 7 to 8. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. So God goes down and goes, he scatters them. He scatters them. Now, this is the first time we see God do something like this, where he comes down and he goes, he spreads them all out. First time in the Bible God does this, not the only time. In fact, God does this quite a bit if you read your Bible. For example, in the Old Testament, Israel, the nation of Israel, when they gathered together, God gave them a mission. He said, hey, I'm saving you from Egypt, and there's a mission for you. And Exodus 19.6 says the mission. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But they weren't holy. They disobeyed God's law. So what did God do? Ezekiel 36. I scattered them among the nations. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations. God scattered them because they weren't fulfilling the mission. In the early church, oftentimes when we think of the early church, we think they were so holy. They were so good. Look at the book of Acts. They were amazing. And in many ways, they were amazing. They loved each other. They served the poor. But remember, the early church had a mission. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Jesus tells the church, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the church did not do that. They loved each other in Jerusalem. They healed the the sick in Jerusalem. They preached in Jerusalem. So what did God do? Chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, and the rest of the book of Acts is all about them scattering. Very fascinating. So what we actually take away from this is an interesting lesson. Even if you are doing good things in your life, we have a God who will shake his people to get them on mission. Even if you're doing good things, because as good as those things are, if they are not related to the purpose of what God wants you to do, do not be surprised if God shakes you. And I know some of you right now, you're probably going through stuff. You have stuff going on in your life that nobody knows about or only a few people know about, and life feels a little bit shaky for you. And while the book of Job tells us there's mystery to that, where we don't fully know why, it could be, according to Genesis 11, that God's trying to really shake you to ask you something. When was the last time you were on mission for God? Was it the mission trip you went on back in college? Was it the campus ministry or evangelism program that you were part of? Was that the last time you ever thought you were on mission? When was the last time that was even in your vocabulary as you made your life decisions. 
there's an essay that I read. It's called The Sweetness of Life with God. And it pretty much described this uh, married couple. Their names were Mark and Martha, and they were married for 25 years. They had four children, all grown up, and they are empty nesters now. Uh, they were getting ready for retirement. They went to church every single Sunday. And when I look at that life, I'm like, dude, that's what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for that day where my kids just grow up. Like, please, grow. Leave the house. And so my wife and I, we could just save up our money. We could travel. We have all these spots we want to travel, my wife and I. We can't do it because our kids are too young. And so we just want to travel. We want to go places. And we want to save up. And that's kind of how most of us think, right? Let's save up. Let's buy property. And then the second half of our life, Let's travel around the world and enjoy. What's interesting is this couple, they were at that point, but all of a sudden the husband, Mark, he felt a twitch in his muscles. And he's like, this is weird. This feels unusual. Went to the doctors and he learned sadly that he has uh, what's called ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Pretty much you become paralyzed, your muscles, you can't really move. And so when Mark heard this, he was devastated. He's like, dude, I am about to like enjoy my life. Like, this is going to be like the part that I saved up for. He was angry. He's like, I went, you know, I tried my best to be good. I tried to like be kind to people. I tried to raise my kids right. Why is this happening to me? But in the midst of that, he actually experienced an epiphany. And the epiphany he wrote in the essay, he says this, quote, I played sports in my younger years, and I always hated sitting on the bench. One day, just after my diagnosis, I cried out to God that I thought I was being pulled out of the game when I still had something to offer. His response was, you've been on the sideline for some time. You are just now going in the game. In other words, what Mark was saying is he realized like, wow, my whole life, even though it was good, it was pretty shallow. It had nothing to do with the deeper purpose of why God created me for. And the plan that he was making for the rest of his life, it's pretty shallow too. Again, it's nice. It's kind of the American dream. And yet there's a shallowness to it. Had nothing to do with God, had nothing to do with his mission, had nothing to do with his church. And now today, Mark, what's interesting is he's completely paralyzed now. He's not able to move. And he realized, though, that, you know, but at the same time, there is something just deeper and more meaningful of what this life looks like for him now. Because he looks back going, God really shook me. He shook me from what the type of life that I was living, where I thought life was about traveling and so forth. But now he realized there's this deeper joy, this deeper purpose drawn near to the Lord, engaging in loving people, sharing the gospel with others, because he is doing what he feels God has actually created him for. And so as I share that story, asking you guys now, how about for you? Is there something in your life where God is shaking you? And he's actually saying, you know, I need you back in the game. I'm calling you to come back to the game. For some of you, it might be your marriage, where you're not sure why your marriage is shaky. Something just kind of feels not really together or connected. And again, it could be, you don't know why, but it could be, could it be maybe your marriage, there's something just so self-centered about it where it's all about you guys. It's all about what you two want to do with each other. But maybe God's calling you to make it more God-centered, to invite others into your relationship, to invite others into your home, to use your marriage to be a blessing to people. For some of you, it might be your career where you're just kind of unstable in your career and what you want to do. But maybe God is shaking you because your career so far had nothing to do with him. It had nothing to do with his mission. Some of you might be your friendships, your community. People are moving away. People are like, it's kind of weird drama that's taking place. And maybe God's shaking it because he's letting you know, you know, your relationships have been really insular for a very long time. It's been very exclusive for a very long time. And he wants you in the game again. He wants you to invite others into your life. 
I know for me personally, one of the stressors is church. Church tends to be, it's, God's always shaking it. It's always stressful. Pastor Eric understands. There's something just stressful as a pastor thinking about church. And some days, I remember one day it was really hard, and I went to my wife, and I was like, you know, hon, this is not what I signed up for. I did not sign up for this as a pastor. And I really felt God speaking to me in that moment where God pretty much was saying, you know, and what exactly did you sign up for, Tom? Like, what did you sign up to be a pastor for? Was it to fulfill your plans? Was it to do what you wanted to do? Or are we here to fulfill my purpose for you? And that was really rebuking to me where I realized, like, you know, church, it just might look really different than what I imagined. But maybe God is shaking things to kind of get me aligned to remember that this isn't my church. It's his church. He's shaking things to remember that. And maybe he's saying the same thing to you. He's shaking you. He's shaking things about you to get you back into his purpose. And even though it's hard and it's challenging, where day by day we're called to just love and care and put ourselves out there, super challenging, and yet the promise is there is a great joy that awaits us when we do this. And that leads to the last point, the praising of God's restoration of life. You know, Genesis 1 to 11 uh, the, the whole section, there's actually a pattern that every story has. Uh, the stories always has three parts. Every story in Genesis 1 to 11, a story of sin, judgment, then a glimmer of hope. That's how all the stories go. Adam, Adam Eve, they sinned, they ate the fruit. Judgment, they got kicked out of Eden, but there's a glimmer of hope. God says there's going to be a, a seed that comes that crushes the serpent's head. That's hope there. Cain and Abel, there was sin. Cain killed his brother. There's judgment. Cain got cast out east of Eden, but then there's hope, where God, he marks Cain and goes, nobody will kill you. Noah, there is sin, where people are doing all this bad stuff. There's judgment, the flood, and then there's hope. There's a rainbow where God says, I will never destroy the earth again. Now, the Tower of Babel story, we see the same pattern happening, where we see that there is sin. God's people did not go on mission. There is judgment. The people are scattered. But the one difference in this story is there's no hope. This is the one story that closes with the kind of a dark closing. Look what it says in verse, um, verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. God scattered everybody. They're not on mission. And that's how it ends. Genesis 1 to 11, it closes. And it's just this bleak, dark picture of how lost humanity is. So where's the hope? And the hope actually comes in the rest of the Bible. Because if you guys, ever, if you guys know Genesis, after chapter 11, you know what happens in the next chapter? We meet a dude called Abraham. All of a sudden, Abraham comes. And God, instead of giving a command to Abraham, going, go and do all, God actually makes a promise. He makes a promise going, hey, I'm going to fulfill the mission. God's going to fulfill the mission now. There's going to be a Messiah that comes through your line, Abraham. He is the promised seed of Adam and Eve. And the whole Old Testament is just describing who this Messiah is. This prophet, this king, this priest who ministers and does everything that we fail to do. And in the New Testament, we get introduced who that person is. His name is Jesus. And we learn that Jesus, he's actually God himself. And Jesus, he accomplishes the mission that we fail to accomplish by perfectly obeying all of God's commands Jesus removes any judgment that we deserve for sin by taking judgment on the cross for us. And Jesus, he resurrects from the dead because death cannot hold him. And he promises the same for those of you who place their trust in him. And then Jesus ascends. He resurrected and went to heaven. And he says, I'm going to come back. But until I'm back, 
church, new life, what are you supposed to do? Be on mission, he says. Be on mission. Now, one last detail that's really interesting. You know, after Jesus goes up, he goes, bye, guys, and he shoots up there. Do you remember what happened right after that in the book of Acts? You guys know, like, when he left up? It wasn't that the church was like, well, let's get going. They all got freaked out. They're like, what do we do? But then something happens, right? Uh, they call it Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down on the people. And it's really fascinating. Um, right when the Holy Spirit comes down on people, the people, they don't get filled with spirit going, oh, my gosh, I'm going to fly. And they start flying. Or they don't go, like, I'm going to make bread and, and change it into, like, a feast. Or I'm going to heal people. That's not what they do. Do you remember the first thing that happens when the Spirit fills all the people in Pentecost? Acts chapter 2 tells us, and it's very interesting. It says in chapter, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues, other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Huh, that's weird. So the Spirit comes, fills people, and he has them speak a different language, and they all understand each other? What's going on? And most scholars agree, you know what's taking place in Pentecost? It's the reversal of Babel. Whereas Babel, people got scattered and did not understand each other and were far from God. Pentecost was the gathering of God's people. Jesus is doing something different. where they all understand each other and are praising God together. And Jesus, the reason why he does this is he wants to show the people what they are on mission for. What it is that they are doing, the grand purpose of everyday sacrifices, living for the Lord. You know, I love movies. Uh, I saw Top Gun Maverick recently. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. You have to watch it in the theater. But one thing that I do with movies is, I'm not sure if some of you guys like this. As soon as I watch a movie, I don't just go home and go, well, that was a great movie. I, like, go on YouTube and I research, like, how they made Top Gun. I'll go on IMDb and go, like, hey, what's, like, all the stuff that's going on, the trivia. I'll read, like, the director and listen to his interviews and so forth because I'm just kind of like a movie buff in that way. And what's interesting is uh, when you look into how people make movies like this, it's actually really hard because the actors themselves, they don't know what's going on when they're filming them. If you ever like, did like, some type of movie production before, you'll know that when they film you, it's not just one take. It's like take after take after take. I had a glimpse of this when I was a college pastor. We had to do like, those college skits. We did a video. And after the fifth take, I'm like, dude, forget it. Like, whatever. Like, just take whatever we got, because it's just really tiring. You don't know what's going on. And this happens in the movie industry. And so what directors do, directors, what they'll offer to their actors is something called dailies. I don't know if you ever heard of dailies before, but dailies are pretty much, they'll say, hey, all you actors who we filmed like, a, like 200 takes, come here. Let me show you what we just filmed. And he'll show them a scene in the movie, and all the actors are like, oh, my gosh, that looks amazing. And it's meant to, like, inspire the actors and actresses to be like, you know, this is worth it. That if we're doing that, let's do it. And what's interesting is as soon as the movie is finished, there's always what at the end of a movie? A movie premiere where all the actors come, all the actresses come. And when all the actors and actresses see the whole movie now, this movie they shot, and the coherent story, they're just so happy. They're so proud. I watched those interviews too. The movie premiere, they're all being interviewed going, I can't believe I was a part of that. That was amazing. It's such a privilege and honor to be part of this movie production. And I think this is what Jesus was doing at Pentecost. He was saying, hey, you're going to be on mission, church. It's really hard. It's really hard not to stay in Babel. It's really hard to just really think about somebody besides yourself. In fact, it's hard to do just these little things like saying hi to your person who's not your friend after service. 
It's hard to invite a coworker to your home. He knows, it's hard. It's very hard. And in fact, it could get discouraging. No one's gonna tell you when you invite your neighbor to eat dinner, good job, man, way to go. Nobody knows. Nobody's gonna talk to you after service going, hey, I saw you talking to a newcomer. Dude, that's being on mission. Nobody does that. And that's why it's discouraging sometimes, and it's hard. But this is where we also get to experience dailies together here when we gather on church on Sundays. This is actually a gathering that's meant to show us this is a glimpse of what you guys are doing. This is the purpose of your mission. I remember um, there's, this is kind of a personal story to you guys in, in New Life. There's a, there's a guy in, who was a college student at my church, as lost as he can be, as lost as he can, like, just lost. Like, you know, don't know where, what's going on with his life. He looked like that Asian gangster that I tend to, like, you know, it might be me judging, but like, you look like an Asian gangster, and I'm glad you're here. <laughs> like, I'm glad you're at our church. Met every single week. We minister him. We talk to him. No response, no response, no response. Always there every single week. Um, did not seem like much fruit was going on. Uh, down the line, though, uh, it was very interesting to see him get more plugged in, seeing him be part of a community group seeing him on Sundays. Uh, and now, you know where he's at? He's at your church. He's at New Life. And I, I just told him today, I was like, dude, when, when I, you, seeing you here, that's so encouraging. So, and that was like seven years ago when we first ministered to this brother. And it made me think when I saw him worshiping here in Seattle from where he was, I was like, dude, this was all worth it. That makes it worth it. And so for those of you, I know you have people in your life that it's hard ministering to them people you want to give up on, your community group, that young college student, you feel like they just don't get it. And it could be discouraging. But the dailies is when you come into this worship space and when you see them praising God, that's when you're like, you know, this is worth it. This gives me strength and motivation to just do those small things each and every day. And so church, if I could exhort you, would you remember that you are called and invited to join God's mission? to love others, to make disciples, to live outside of Babel. And these gatherings here are meant to be these dailies for us to encourage us that this is why we do it. And so as, I, as we close in prayer, can I just pray for us and pray for this church and invite us to be activated, to be on mission again? Let's all pray. Father, I just pray for this community here. I lift up, O oh Lord, all the brothers and sisters who as we gather together, I know for many of us, God, we come, we're tired, uh, there's struggles in our life that we wrestle with. And yet, oh Lord, it could be that you are shaking us many times because you want us to get back in the game. You want us, Lord, to live not according to our own purposes, but for your purpose. Because you know, oh God, that you have created us for a purpose, to not just live with you, but to also do the mission of God together. And I pray, oh Lord, that we could find our joy knowing that, Lord, where you move, oh God, and when we're part of it, there is joy to be found in moments like that. And God, even though it can be hard and tiresome, may we remember that gatherings like this on the Sundays, when we gather together as your church, this is what we're doing it for, to see people worship you, praising you, even as we saw earlier today, seeing people get baptized. This is, oh God, the purpose of why you call us to be here, to point people to a great savior, to live a life that's greater than the life, oh Lord, that we plan for ourselves. Would you bless new life and let it truly be a community that would be activated and to be on mission together, both personally and corporately as a church. So I pray for this church, O Lord, and we lift it all up in your son's name.